And this morning I had uh, had something on my heart that, uh, that the Lord's been dealing with me about a little bit here of late. Uh, I want to talk about the, start with the, the uh, healing of the nobleman's son. John chapter 4, beginning in verse, uh, well, let's start in verse 46, I guess. It says, so Jesus came again into Cana of Galilee where he had made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. And when he heard that Jesus had, was come out of Judea into Galilee, he went unto to him and besought him that he would come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Then said Jesus unto him, Except you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now, we uh, it's been quite a while ago, several weeks back, when we were talking about some of the Old Testament miracles, specifically the Exodus miracles. And, uh, and we looked over in Numbers chapter 14, I believe it was, where... where um, uh, God spoke to the children of Israel. They were re- that was uh, the situation where they were rebelling against God, uh, refusing to go in to take the promised land. They said they couldn't when God said the land was already theirs. And you remember the story. And um, um, God said God was really upset, and He was speaking to Moses on uh, uh, to direct information to the people. And He said, "Because I've done these signs and wonders," He's talking about the miracles, uh, the plagues of Egypt, and so forth. Uh, bringing them through the Red Sea on, on dry land and, and all the other things that he's done for them up to that point in time. He said, because they have seen my glory and all the miracles which I did in Egypt and have not hearkened unto my word, they shall not go into, my, into the promised land. In other words, it's saying that the purpose for the miracles, and please realize that miracles are there for a reason. We have record of miracles in the Bible. God does miracles today for a specific reason, and that is to communicate with mankind. Miracles are to tell us something, is to show us something, is to communicate something to us directly from God the Father. Well, what was it that the miracles of the Old Testament were supposed to, or at least the Exodus miracles, I believe they're all the same, but you decide for yourself. But what was it that these miracles were supposed to communicate? God said it was supposed to communicate to them the the importance, the necessity of hearkening unto the word of God. See, in most cases, it seems to me, and you judge this for yourself, but in most cases, people pick one of the two. They'll either pick the word or they want to see miracles. And how many times have we heard people say, well, I, if, if only I could see a miracle, then I'd believe. When in fact, the people, the very people that saw the miracles were the ones that God said didn't believe. See, we want to think that miracles will make everybody believe, but they won't. There's only one thing that makes people believe, and that's a choice to believe. Now, with or without a miracle, you can choose to believe. But now here in this case, Jesus is saying something, and, and I, I want to make sure that we get this, get this right, because Jesus is not saying, I'll never do a miracle for you because you won't believe. But Jesus is saying, you've decided that you're not going to believe without seeing something. Now, folks, remember the definition of faith. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 says, Faith is the evidence of things not seen. Faith is the evidence of things not seen. Faith, a choice to believe, a decision to believe, is the evidence of things not seen. If you're believing in something you can see, that's not faith. At least it's not Bible faith. Bible faith is by definition a belief in something that you cannot see with your physical eye. Well, then how how do miracles work in with that? Miracles are things that we can see. Miracles are changes in circumstances and, and, and situations that change and are altered so that we can see. Now, when we're talking about see, we're using that as a general term. We're talking about seeing with the physical eye, but sometimes you can perceive or recognize with the five physical senses in some way other than seeing. So you can't see perfume, but you can tell when it's around. So when we talk about seeing, we're talking about the, the function of the five physical senses. But miracles bring something into the sense realm, right? They bring something into the physical realm, not from not the unseen realm, but into the physical, the seen, the known. Why does that fit with faith? That fits with faith one and only one way, and that is miracles will happen and miracles will occur 
for the express purpose of us recognizing the miracle worker and realizing that he's able and willing to show his power on our behalf. Therefore, he is worthy to be trusted. That's what miracles are about, folks. That's what miracles are about. And we have to be careful because when we talk about miracles, and I knew this going in, but the more we've gone into it, the more I've been aware of it. We have to be careful because when you talk about miracles, the one that makes the top of the list, the miracles that make the top of the list are the ones that excite us. They're the spectacular things that happen. For example, we could talk about Jesus raising the dead. Three times Jesus raised the dead in his ministry. Wow, that hits the top of the list for me. But when you start looking at things and only things like that, then very often you miss the other things that God's doing. I think very often what we do is we're looking for the Hollywood version of the miracles. You know, you can't find a miracle where lightning flashed when Jesus did something. You can't find a miracle where thunder roared, well, outside of the fact when Jesus was hanging on the cross. But that was a little different situation. That wasn't something he did. That was something that was taking place in and on him. But that's the way we seem to want it. We seem to expect that there's going to be a lightning flash and a thunder roar. And there's going to be some kind of soundtrack that's playing in the background. Because that's what we're used to in the movies. And very often, we miss the things that God's doing around us because we're looking for something else. Brother Hagin said sometime back in the 60s, early, um, not 60s, in the 80s, early 80s sometime, uh, he said this. He said the Lord spoke to him and he said, my people are missing it primarily by looking for the spectacular and missing the supernatural. That's still the case today, it seems to me. Now, this guy's in, in dire need. His father's in dire need. I know, as, uh, you know as well as I do. We're both in the same boat in this, as this. We'd do anything to make sure our kids are okay. This is the nobleman's son that's at the point of death. Now, we don't have confirmation on that, but at least the father believes he's at the point of death. Whether that is the case or not, sometimes people exaggerate the situation, but nevertheless, he considers this to be a desperate last chance attempt at getting healing and health for his son. Jesus said, except you see signs and wonders, you won't believe. Is that the way God wants it? Except you see signs and wonders, you won't believe? I don't believe so. In fact, the Bible says, Jesus said on several occasions in different ways, he said, blessed are they that have not seen and yet believe. He didn't say blessed are those that have seen and believe. He said, blessed are those that have not seen and yet still choose to believe. So God's wanting to correct this guy's situation. What is he trying to inspire? Faith. Notice for Jesus, the miracle is not the important issue. Faith on the part of the individual is. Well, we could camp there for a while. Because again, so often what we're looking for is we're looking for the miracle for our own benefit. We're looking for the miracle, not so that God's name is glorified, but so that we're out of our jam. So that we get out of our situation, so that things change for us. Lord, we want a miracle of healing. Why? Because I'm tired of being sick. Folks, that's a good reason to want healing, is being tired of being sick. The Bible says over and over again, people that, talking about people that were sick of the palsy. It didn't say sick with the palsy. It says they were sick of the palsy. I think there's a, a real important element a key element there you get tired of being sick tired enough of being sick you'll reach out in faith but so often we want it just for us well that's okay god's not against that god's not against this nobleman he's not against his reason for wanting healing for his son who cares what his reason is he wants healing for his son god's okay with that but he wants the individual to believe the, see, the, uh, God's intent, God's willingness to show his power to, to heal the nobleman's son is not at odds with what the man wants, but God's trying to, Jesus is trying to attach to that a change in the man's heart, specifically in this case, a change in the man's will. He will not believe. doesn't say he can't believe. Jesus didn't say, oh boy, this is a tough situation. Unless you get a miracle, you're not going to be able to believe. It's not what he said. 
He said, except you see signs and wonders, you will not. Choice, will, determination. You will not believe. The nobleman said unto him, Sir, come down here, heir, or before, or unless my child shall die. If you don't come, my child's going to die. Notice the father is missing completely what Jesus says. The father does not say, Jesus, I didn't see it that way. Show me how to change. He simply says, you're my only hope. My son's at the point of death. He will die unless you do something. Come down to my house or else my son will die. You see where his head's at. And I'm not throwing rocks. Mine would probably be in the same place. Jesus said unto him, go your way, your son liveth. Now, the the language is a little difficult for us here because you can't tell from the words that are used, the, the, the tense of the verbs and so forth. You can't tell from the Greek if he's saying, go your way, your son lives. Or if he's saying, go your way and your son will live. But either way, remember Jesus' purpose, and that is to get the man over into faith. Either way, it's going to take an act of faith for the man to either believe that his son is okay from that moment or that as he goes back home, his son will be okay. Either way, it's an act of faith on his part, right? Because he's got to act on something. He's got to do something that he can't see already being done. And that's what faith is. Faith is always an act. Faith is always an act. Something you believe will cause you to act in a certain way according to what you can't see. That's Bible faith. And the man believed the word that Jesus had spoken unto him, and he went his way. Now, whichever way Jesus said it, whichever way it was intended, the man believed it. Either go your way, your son's already fine, he's already okay, or go your way and your son will be okay. Either way, the man has to accept what Jesus says. Now, does he see anything yet at that point when he goes his way? No. And that is the first time that the man's situation has changed as far as his willingness to believe. Now, all of a sudden, Jesus, remember what the man came for. He said, come to my house, come down here or else my son will die. He's looking for Jesus to come back with him. Jesus says, I don't have to go, go your way. He's okay or he will be okay, whichever way you want to go with that. I think it's pretty much the same thing. There's a a shade of difference perhaps, but it's so small. Neither way, uh, one way versus the other way doesn't affect what the man does. And that's the real key. It's the man's willingness to believe and act on what Jesus said. That's the thing that makes the difference. Now, it could be an interesting point of discussion if Jesus is saying, go your way and your son will live, meaning if you don't, he won't. In fact, that may be the impetus that caused him to believe. I don't know. But what we do know is this. The man believed the word that Jesus said, and he went his way. And as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Thy son liveth. Your son's okay. Then inquired he of of them the hour when he began to amend. Now, amend is not an instant healing. Amending means began to recover. What time did he begin to recover? And they said unto him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew it was at the same hour in which Jesus said to him, Thy son liveth, and himself believed in his whole house. This is, again, the second miracle. Notice the Bible calls this a miracle. This, again, is the second miracle that Jesus did when he was come out of Judea into Galilee. Now, can I ask you a question? What was the miracle? What was the miracle? Was the miracle the... the, the fever leaving the sun was the was the miracle of the sun beginning to amend what was the miracle i have to go with the fever i have to go with the miracle being the moment the fever left that was the miracle that took place but notice there was still more to do after that There was still an amending process. This is what the Bible calls a miracle, where God's hand aided the natural healing process of the body. 
Now, we don't know what caused the, the fever. We don't know what it was. I mean, it, it could have been something serious like scarlet fever or typhoid fever or something like that. Or it could have just been a high fever to threaten the boy's life. We don't know. But notice the point where something changed was not the end result. He began to amend. He began to amend. Now, this man recognized the significance. This miracle communicated something to him. I like the fact that the guy asked, when did this happen? Because he's looking for what this thing is supposed to mean, which is what a lot of people don't do. Let me point, let me, uh, uh, let me prove this to you. Turn back with me to, uh, uh, turn back with me to Mark chapter six. We talked about the miracle of the loaves and the fishes, the feeding of the 5,000 and so forth. You remember after the feeding of the 5,000, there were 12 baskets full that were left over. Jesus said, gather up all the, the fragments. Don't let anything go to waste. By the way, folks, God's the God that's more than enough, but God is not a waster. If you are, you're never going to experience God's abundance. God's not a waster. Jesus told them to gather up the fragments. Now, what do you think they did with the 12 baskets full of stuff? What did Jesus do with everything else he had? He gave to the poor. The Bible says that a waster is a brother to a man that's lazy. And there's such an attitude, easy come, easy go. And there's a lot of that attitude in the body of Christ today. A lot of attitude, uh, that attitude in the, the so-called prosperity message. What some people think is the prosperity message. Well, the, God's always going to have more than enough so we don't have to take care of what we've got. That's not the way God operates, folks. So Jesus told them to gather up the fragments and so forth. And then he sent them away. And then he comes walking to them on the water in the night. You remember the story? Start with me in Mark chapter 6 in verse, uh, where do we want to get to? I don't want to read the whole thing. Let's start in verse 49. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed that it had been a spirit and cried out. For they all saw him and were troubled. And immediately he talked with them and said unto them, be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. Now Mark doesn't tell us about Peter walking on the water. John doesn't tell us about Peter walking on the water. I'm not surprised about John, but you know. Mark doesn't tell us about that. Verse 51, it said, And he went up unto them into the ship, and the wind ceased, and they were sore amazed in themselves beyond measure and wondered. Now, there's a miracle. How did that miracle occur? Did Jesus say, Peace be still? Not that time. There was another storm he calmed when he went to sleep in the back part of the ship. You remember the story? The disciples woke him up and said, said, Jesus, we're about to drown. You need to be awake for this. Jesus stood up, calmed his water. He said, peace, be still. And said, what's the matter with you guys? Don't you realize I said we're going to the other side? You don't have to worry about a storm in the middle. Here, he just goes into the ship and the wind ceases. Did he command it to happen? Well, not that we have record of. What's the, what's the cause of this? Is, this? is the storm because Jesus is walking on the water? But once he gets in the ship, no point in the storm anymore? Folks, I'm asking some questions I don't have some answers for. But the Bible says when he got into the ship, the wind ceased and everything calmed down. I like to use that as an example this way. When Jesus is in your boat, things calm down. And the very reason some people are in such turmoil is they have not got him in the boat. Or maybe they don't know he's in the boat. Anyway, went up unto them into the ship and the wind ceased and they were sore amazed in themselves beyond measure and wondered. Now, folks, signs and wonders are things that make people wonder. That's why they call them wonders. Not always things that you have answers for, but things that make people wonder. So they're wondering. They're amazed. It's like, wow, whoever saw anything like this? But now notice verse 52. What is it that's causing them to wonder? Well, a great thing's happened. A miracle has taken place. But it says, for or because they considered not the miracle of the loaves, for their heart was hardened. 
In other words, it's telling us, Mark is telling us by the Holy Ghost that the disciples missed the meaning of the loaves and the fishes. They missed the meaning of the miracle of feeding the 5,000. They missed it. There was something that was to be communicated to them that they missed out on. They missed that communication. Now turn over with me to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, here's the story of the feeding of the 5,000. Let me pick up in the middle of the story. How about verse 12? John chapter 6, verse 12. When they were filled, he said unto his disciples, Gather up the fragments that remain, that nothing would be lost. Therefore they gathered them together and filled 12 baskets with fragments of the five barley loaves, which remained over and above unto them that had eaten. Now notice verse 14. Then those men, when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, said... This is of a truth, that prophet that should come into the world. In other words, John is telling us by the Holy Ghost, John looking back 60 years later, is telling us there were people in that crowd. He didn't identify himself as one. He didn't identify the apostles as one, the the disciples as being part of the group. But he said there were those that recognized that the feeding of the 5,000, the communication of the feeding of the 5,000 was this, and that was the information that this is the Son of God. This is the Messiah. What was the miracle supposed to communicate? Nobody could do this but the Messiah. What were the miracles of Jesus supposed to communicate in every situation? Nobody can do this except the Messiah. Jesus even said about the Jews, he said, if I had not done the miracles that no man ever did, then they would have an excuse. But because I did miracles that no man could ever do, or has ever done before. They have no excuse for their sin. They have no excuse for rejecting me. So what were the miracles supposed to communicate? That Jesus is the Messiah. Now for us that means a whole lot. For them that means the one has come. For us it means look at what he did for us. For us it means the totality of redemption. It means we've been made righteous. It means we've been redeemed from poverty. It means we've been redeemed from sickness. It means we, the blessing of Abraham are our, is ours. It means all that the Bible tells us, all that the, the letters written to the church inform us of who we are and what we have and the power of God that's available to us, the power that's in the name of Jesus and so forth, the power to recreate us and make us new, to save us, but then the power to live a victorious life after we're saved. That's what miracles are intended to communicate. That's what they're supposed to mean. That's what they're supposed to say to us. But again, I think so often we miss that. We take so much for granted. And, and, and I've got to tell you, folks, some of this may be my fault. I, I'll take my share of responsibility on this because there are things that, um, that are happening all around us, some things that we don't take time to tell about and other things that, that I don't find out about till later. There's a, there's a situation I just found out about uh, that's a couple of months old, I guess, that um, uh, there was a lady that's been to our church for just a few months. She started hearing the word, and she found some lumps in her breast, several of them. She found lumps in her breast, went to the doctor. The doctor said, yeah, this doesn't look good. We need to schedule some kind of biopsy or, or whatever they do. I don't even know. But whatever we do, we need to do some tests on this. Before she could get back for the test, she started praying and believing God for it. And the things had disappeared when she got back to the doctor. We've got another situation that's a pretty recent thing too, from what I understand. Where somebody in the church had prostate cancer, was diagnosed by the doctor, did just a minimal amount of treatments on the thing, going back for further treatments and it had disappeared before they could even finish the treatment regimen. Well now... I've never been anybody to hype stuff up. I mean, I'm about as dull as they come. (laughs) But at least I know my weaknesses, you know. And I guess because I'm that way, the church has kind of taken on that personality. (laughs) And so a lot of times people have testimonies and they don't know what to do with them. 
because we're never telling things like that. We never make a big deal. You know, I guess at any time we could have a testimony service, but I hate testimony services because people get up and testify, supposedly testifying to what God's done. They wind up talking about themselves. So after a few testimony services that I have to go in the back room and throw up afterwards, (laughs) I kind of gave up on the testimony stuff. And that's not right. I'm not doing right by that. So a lot of times people have testimonies. They won't know what to do with them. I'll hear somebody talking about things in passing. You know, well, it's like what happened with so-and-so a year ago. They'll tell the story and I say, what? What happened? I find out and I'll think, well, why didn't we tell about that? Well, nobody knew to tell me or nobody thought to tell me or nobody thought I'd care or whatever. I don't know. But when you miss out on telling things that God is doing, particularly with us talking about and preaching about miracles, then it makes it seem like nothing's happening, but something's going to happen down the road. Folks, we've got stuff happening all the time. We've got stuff happening all the time. And I know this, you've, you've, perhaps you've heard me tell the story about George Stormont. He was the, uh, the minister that was a young man in uh, the latter days of Smith Wigglesworth's life. He was a close uh, friend of his. Became, Wigglesworth called him the Benjamin of his old age. So Wigglesworth was in his, I don't know, I guess when they met he was in his late, uh, uh, probably early 70s, I guess. He lived to 87, so there was about a 12 to 15-year period, I think, that uh, Storman and he were, were acquainted and real close. And so Wigglesworth just loved this guy. As a young man, uh, Stormont was in his late 20s, maybe early 30s, you know, during the time that he met him. And uh, just Wigglesworth just took to him. And so they were together a lot. And, and uh, as a result, um, uh, Stormont had a chance to see a lot of things that happened in, in the latter years of Wigglesworth's life and, and hear firsthand from Wigglesworth some things that had happened that he didn't see, you know, that, uh, that happened before he became acquainted with him. And so he, he just, I mean, this is a guy that was just full of stories. Well, we had a chance to get to know the guy and had him preach in the church several times in the early years. He's since gone home to be with the Lord. And, uh, and so I just pumped him for information. Man, I wanted to hear this guy's story. I wore this guy out. I mean, he was an older man. He was probably in his uh, late 70s when, when we met him. And, uh, and I'd keep him at lunch, just, just wear him out, telling me stories. Tell me this. Well, what about this? And what about that? And, and of course, he knew that I was hungry for the things of God and, and, uh, and so forth. And, and so after the, it was the first time he was with us. He came and he preached on a Wednesday night. We were over in the, the little uh, industrial building that we had over on Rockfield, uh, off of Rockfield. And... Um, um, presence of god just settled in he he taught just sweet guy just i mean he just dripped love he just said jesus and just fell in love with him you know and um so anyway we had a had a real real good service real real sweet time with with uh with him while he was ministering and then afterwards we just started worshiping the lord a little bit and the spirit of god the presence of god just settled in on that service now that was not an unusual thing we'd have that from time to time but see i was looking for something else and so after the service was over, we were sitting in the, the upstairs office that I had, and, and uh, he's sitting in the, the recliner and just still basking in the presence of God. And he, he's sitting there and, and just sweet old guy. And he said, oh, wasn't that wonderful? I said, well, yeah, that's good. He said, oh, what a sweet presence of the Lord there was. Yeah, yeah that's good. And he kept on and on. And finally I said, well, Doc, we kind of have that, not all the time, but we have that pretty regularly. Now, I've spent all day long asking him about Wigglesworth, trying to pump him about the power of God and about the miracles and Wigglesworth kicking people in the seat of the pants and, you know, different things that, uh, that happened that, that brought the power of God into the situation, their situations. So I said, well, Doc, we, we kind of have that regularly. And he opened his eyes. He's leaning back, leaning his head back with his eyes closed, and he opened his eyes and a look of shock on his face. He says, good God, man, what are you looking for? And I felt about an inch tall. <laughs> but I've asked myself that a lot of times since then. Good, I can still hear that, those words ringing in my ears. Good God, man, what are you looking for? 
And I think what happens is so often we look for something we don't have and fail to appreciate what we do. Now, know this. I tell you this with a certainty. If you don't appreciate what God is doing, forget about him doing something more. God stays where he's appreciated. God stays where his presence is valued. God operates where the people in and among people who care about what he is doing, not complaining about what he's not. And aren't we that way with our kids? We give our kids a present for Christmas or a birthday or something like that, and we're excited for them because we think they're going to like it so much. They look at it and discard it and go on to something else. I don't know about you, but I've thought a bunch of times, that's the last thing I'll ever buy you, you ungrateful so-and-so. And, of course, it didn't. I shell out next time just like I did last time. But it's the way we feel about it, isn't it? Folks, I'm doing a better job of preaching than you are of saying amen. Because we're all guilty of this. At least we have been. What are you looking for? You looking for the Hollywood miracle? You looking for things that will excite you? Are you looking for the supernatural? See, folks, there are things that are taking place. I don't know if I can say this the right way, so I have to be really careful. I think our church ought to be ten times the size that we are. And we are a lot bigger than what we look like. We're reaching uh, sometimes 100,000 people a week on, uh, on the TV program. So we are bigger than what we look, look like. And, and that's fine. I'm not complaining about anything. I wouldn't take a bigger church and exchange it for a weaker church for anything. I wouldn't take a bigger crowd just for the sake of the size of the crowd. I'd rather have people that are hungry for the truth of the word. Thank you. I can handle this, really. I can do this on my own. So I've got to make sure I say this the right way. But there ought to be more people that appreciate the word. Shouldn't there? See, I think everybody should. I think the reason that they don't is because they get distracted, and that's easy to see. We've had times in our lives where we've been distracted and didn't care as much about the things of God as we do now, perhaps. Right? Well, did that make us a bad person before? No. Well, some of you, maybe so. No, it doesn't make us bad people. It just means that our attention is focused on other things. And, folks, that is the devil's number one job in your life is to distract you. You need to realize that. The devil doesn't care anything about you as an individual. You're not important enough to him to take up his time. He doesn't care about you. These people that talk about, oh, the devil, God must have something good for me because the devil has been attacking me. Give me a break. The devil is attacking you because he knows you're an easy mark. You can change that. But that's so often the case. The devil doesn't care about you as an individual. What he cares about is you not showing the power of the word in reality in your life. And so what is he going to do? He's going to do everything he can to pull your attention away. He's going to do everything he can to distract you, to keep you out of the word to begin with. I've heard this so many times. Blessed people's darling hearts. Pastor Mike, as soon as I started believing God, all hell broke loose in my life. Well, duh. What were you expecting? The devil to say, oh, let me leave you alone. You're a believer now. Come on. And the Bible says to whom much is given, much is required. That means if you have the knowledge of the word of God, that means you're going to be responsible for standing on that truth and that knowledge.
I've got some pastor friends that have, that have experienced some things where healing is concerned that they got healing a lot quicker than I've gotten mine. And the devil will mess with your head on that. But I realize the Lord has given me a great understanding of the word. Now, great, by great, I don't mean great in comparison to other people. I mean great in value. And I'm going to be, I have to be responsible for standing on what I preach to other people about standing, in truth, in, in standing on the truth of the word. I wish things could happen as fast as you snap your fingers just like you do. But what would we believe in it, be believing in if that's the way that it worked? Wouldn't it be great if Jesus had said in Mark chapter eleven twenty three, Therefore, whosoever shall say unto this mountain four times, Be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe those things that he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Man, be removed, be removed, be removed, be removed. We could all do that. See, the real issue is not doubting in your heart. And the devil is always trying to figure out, What is your limit? On doubting in your heart. Okay. That pain didn't make you doubt in your heart. What about this one? That circumstance didn't make you doubt in your heart. What about the next one I've got planned? What about all of them at once? And that's where people complain, see? That's where people complain about, oh, the devil is after me. Brother Hagin used to tell about some lady that got up in his church service when he was pastoring. He said, she got up and she said, the devil's been after me all the week. Bless his holy name. <laughs> he used to tell her she got her praise misplaced there. <laughs> well, we think the devil's after us because we're important. No, the devil's after one and only one thing, and that's the word. And folks, look at how that's happened even on a national scale now. I mean, these gay rights jihadists. Good Lord. And I don't expect it to stop. You can say that Christianity is under attack, but that's really not true. You know what's under attack? The word. Churches that call themselves Christian churches that are for gay rights and gay marriage and all that kind of stuff, they don't have a problem. It's all about one and only one thing, and that is letting go of the word. I saw some activists quote this last week saying, anybody that holds on to the archaic Bible for their beliefs needs to be silenced. Well, good luck with that. It's the word that's under attack. It's always been the word that's under attack. It's just on a national level now. Now, you can say it's about the name of Jesus, but folks, you can't separate the name of Jesus from the word. You got people that claim to be Christians, and I'm not saying they're not. They may certainly have made Jesus the Lord of their lives. But if you're not living by the word, to what degree are you living in the name of Jesus? To what degree are you magnifying the name of Jesus? If you're willing to give up on core principles, I mean the simplest things about saying what the Bible says is, is not, then where's the name of Jesus there? What place does the name of Jesus hold in your life? Because the life of the individual is doing that. I don't think you can separate them. And the time is coming where there's going to be a litmus test for the Christian, for Christians worldwide or nationwide at least. I don't know what it's going to be like around the world. They're dealing with their own stuff. We're dealing with gay rights activists. They're dealing with Islamists that are trying to cut their heads off. We live in some interesting times. In the last days, perilous times shall come. I've told you this before, but that word perilous times, that phrase perilous times, means one meaning is strength-reducing times. And folks, I can tell you right away, just without any fear of contradiction here, there's going to be a lot of Christians that give up what they believe because they don't want to be thought ill of by the world. But that's what the Bible says too. It says before Jesus comes, there'll be a falling away. You can translate that one of two ways. You can translate either catching away, meaning rapture, or falling away, meaning apostasy. 
And the Holy Ghost chose a word that could mean both. Well, which does it mean, Pastor Mike? I believe it means both. I believe you've got a lot of Christians that are going to fall away, but then it also tells us that Jesus is coming back for the church. But remember also, the Bible says in the last days, the church will be glorious. Jesus is coming back for a glorious church. What part of the church do you think is going to be glorious? The ones that are giving up on the, the power of God and the truth of the word in their lives? Or the ones that are standing against that persecution? The Bible says there'll be a great last day harvest before Jesus comes. You know the times where the church grew the most in the book of Acts? During times of persecution. You may not be aware of this, but the church in other parts of the world have been praying for America to be persecuted for for years, decades. Because they know, they live in places where where the church is persecuted. They know that's where they see the power of God in operation. That's where they see people having to stand up and count themselves as a believer. There's no middle ground in a lot of these countries overseas. I think it's coming to the same place over here too. Well, maybe this next presidential election can change things. Yeah, let's put our faith in that. I haven't decided. Now, we've got, you need to know this. We've, uh, uh, we built in, and we did this years ago. We built into the church bylaws and, and so forth, things regarding the, the homosexual agenda and, and uh, legal ways for us to, to be protected and different things like that. But I, I've come to the place where individually, I'm not sure which way I want to go. If somebody comes in and tries to force us, now, now let me, uh, I really wasn't planning to say this, but I'm here, so okay. <laughs> let me tell you what the church's position, my position is on homosexuality. God loves everybody. Homosexuality is not the unpardonable sin. Homosexuality is sexual sin. Just like adultery is. Just like fornication is. And since God loves everybody, everybody is welcome. Wouldn't it be sad if we had to put a sign on the door that said no adulterers allowed? Might cut down on our crowd quite a bit. (laughs) Hope not, but you never know. Well, we would never turn away anybody for for any situation that they're in because where are they going to get help other than the church? And it doesn't bother me, wouldn't bother me for somebody to come in and, and, and sit in our church for year after year after year while they were in sin. At least they're hearing the word. That's the best place for them to be. Be in a place where they can hear the word, where God can work on their heart. So in that sense, the church is open to the public. And that will never change. But now, when it comes to the question of whether I have, to, uh, I have the right, so-called, to deny, to, marry, to deny marrying two homosexual men or two homosexual women, that's a different situation entirely. Now, here's what I'm in a quandary about. I'm not sure whether I just refuse and go to jail if necessary for, for refusing because it's against what the Word says, or a second option would be to go ahead and have the ceremony, preach the whole thing on homosexuality, come to the end and say now according to the law of the state you're joined but don't think God looks on this and smiles or approves of it in any way whatsoever <laughs> and charge like $50,000 <laughs> to perform the ceremony and give it to some pro-life group or something like that so I'm not sure which way I would go but one thing I do know I'll never under any circumstances say or agree with anybody that what the word says is not true. God has to honor that. I I, I can't help but think, and I, I don't have any inside information on this, but I can't help but think that God is sitting in heaven excited about the days and the things that are happening. It's not like he's wringing his hands saying, well, I, I knew this was going to happen all along, but... Man, sure wasn't looking forward to this day. Now, this is the day when Jesus is going to show himself the strongest ever. This is the day where Jesus is going to separate those who say they're Christians from those who really are and live like Christians. Now, I'm not saying that, that 
it's not up to me who's saved and who's not saved. Jesus said you could tell a, fruit, a tree by the fruit that it produces, and so you can look around and tell pretty easily on some things. Some, some people are obviously political Christians. But that's between them and God. But there's always been a distinction in the church between those that would stand up on the word of God and use the name of Jesus, use the power of God at their disposal, and then people that just stood off by the wayside. Jesus talked about that when he wrote to the churches, had John write to the churches in, in the book of Revelation. He said, I'd rather you be hot or cold, not just lukewarm. So the church has always had an, uh, had an element of lukewarmness as a part of who we are. Doesn't that have to be the case? Sure. And what makes people lukewarm? They get tied up with the things of the world. They get distracted from the things that are most important to taking care of the things that are around them. You get dull. It dulls your spiritual sensitivity. I think that's one thing that happens when people start looking for the Hollywood miracle. Because have you noticed the Hollywood miracles are pretty rare. But the supernatural is commonplace to those that will apply the word. Well, I've kind of got myself into this now. I don't know how to get out. Sometimes when you don't have notes. Let's bow our heads. Lord, we worship you. We love you. We believe your word. You know these people. These people are people that have put your word first in their lives. You see what's going on around us, and you're not surprised about even a bit of it. I thank you, Father, in Jesus' precious and holy name. That these were days that were planned for and ordained from the beginning of time. And your plan for these days, Father, is for the glory of the Lord to be manifest. Father, help us. Keep these people from getting tied up and caught up in the things of the world. Help us to see that there's a greater purpose at work. A greater work that's being done. We're not against anybody, Lord, no matter how they portray things in the media. We're not against gays. We're not against any sinners. We're not against anybody under any circumstances. We're here to help them, to show them the way out. But, Lord, we will not compromise on that which is true. Help us, Lord, to grow spiritually. And your definition of growing spiritually is speaking the truth in love. Help us to speak the truth in love. Lord, we commit that we will be loving toward those that hate us. We will bless those that curse us. If they pick it out in front of our church, Lord, we'll take them cookies and water. But Lord, let your truth be known. Let your power be seen. Let your glory fill the earth. Let us realize, Father, that you are the God that is a miracle-working God. Miracles are a part of the DNA of the church. That Jesus is the risen Lord and Savior. And because of that, there is nothing that's too hard for us because we believe in him. We operate according to your word. Father, help us to appreciate every little thing that you're doing in our lives. To recognize it and appreciate it. Forgive us where we've overlooked what you have done looking for something else. Father, it's so important to us to walk close to you in these last days. These days of glory, these days of persecution. We recognize, Father, that they'll take away some of our freedoms. But that won't change our trust in you. We recognize, Father, that they'll make it hard for us. But we won't turn away. We commit to stand strong upon your word. No matter what anybody says. 
no matter what the threat, no matter which way the world goes, Lord, no matter which way our friends go, we shall stand strong upon your truth. Thank you, Lord, for signs and wonders being done in these last days. We pray even as the church did in the book of Acts. Grant unto your servants boldness that we may speak your word by stretching forth your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done in the name of thy holy child, Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for picking us to live in these last days. These last precious, most important days where the glory of the Lord shall be seen and where the precious fruit of the earth shall come forth. Lord, you wouldn't have picked us for this if you didn't know we were able to handle it. So we thank you, Father, that you are our source, you are our supply, you are our righteousness, you are our provider, you are our shepherd, you are our victory. Blessed be the name of Jesus. We are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. We love you, Lord. Use us. You've deposited a wealth of knowledge of your word in our hearts. Use us to help others. In Jesus' precious name. If you can agree with that, say amen. 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 Hallelujah. Let's all stand together. I want to challenge you on something this week. I want you to search for every little thing that the Lord is doing in your life and stop and take time to appreciate it. The more we appreciate what God is doing, the more we can expect him to do. Amen. Will you do that? Amen. God bless you. Have a great day. Come back and be with us this evening if you can. And you're dismissed.